Well, welcome to Palm Sunday, everybody. Did you all bring your palms? Well, lift up your hands and wave them a little bit. Everyone say, Hosanna in the highest. Hallelujah. Hosanna in the highest. Glory to God. You may be seated. And so Palm Sunday, what it does is it marks Jesus' triumphant entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus never, ever did anything by accidents. His entrance into Jerusalem was extremely significant. You'll find this in every account in each of the Gospels. Notice with me from Matthew chapter 21 this morning. In Matthew chapter 21, and beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when he drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. Now Mark's translation of this says, You will find a colt that no one has ever ridden or no one has ever sat on. So the significance of that is is that anything that was used for sacred purposes must have never been used for any other reason. Notice with me in verse 3 of Matthew. It says, And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this was done, that it might be fulfilled. Everyone say, might be fulfilled. Anytime you see that it might be fulfilled, it's saying to us that there was a prophecy that went on hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, the king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. And so this was prophesied over 400 years before Palm Sunday. The text that we look at of this prophecy is found in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the word lowly there, don't let it throw you there. The word lowly literally means it speaks of his humility. It speaks of his humility that is considerate, that is gentle, that is meek, and that is mild. You know, the zealots in Jerusalem, they were looking for a warlike Messiah who would use force. But Jesus showed a greater power than any army and any might of an army. He showed the power of humble wisdom and penetrating love. I just dropped by to tell you this morning that meekness is not weakness. But meekness is power under control. Think about it. Jesus was not a weak person. Carrying a lamb around him and a staff. No, Jesus, a weak person does not go into the temple with a whip and chase out the money changers. 
And we see that he did that. He went in there twice. This is the second time in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 14. It says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Somebody says, well, why in the world is that such a big deal? Because these guys in the temple, they're running a scam. Understand this, that there's people from all over the place. Foreigners are coming in to bring their sacrifice to the Lord. And these scam artists are saying, now, your animals are not approved. Your animals are not good enough. Come over here to our table and we'll sell sell you the proper sacrifice. And oftentimes it was just so jacked up and so expensive that people couldn't do it. What these scam artists were doing, literally, is they were giving the people no access to God. Their scam artistry kept people from offering sacrifices to God. And you know what? It happens in churches today. How many of you know that a church is a place to meet God? And no way at any time should we have a condescending attitude toward people coming to the church that maybe smell like tobacco or perhaps smell like marijuana. I can sniff marijuana a mile away. I know what it smells like. People coming in and looking like, whoa, they're not church people. No, you can't come here. You don't belong here. Not in this place. This is a place where we come to meet God. This is a place where we come to worship God. This is a place where healing takes place for hurting people. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You need to understand this. When a new person comes to this church, they're evaluating several things. They're evaluating the atmosphere. They're evaluating the worship. They're evaluating the pastor, the preacher, and how he teaches and preaches. But I want you to know, they're looking around and they're evaluating you. So if they see you asleep on a pillow, they're thinking, oh, these Christians have snoritis. What's the cure? I tell you, the cure is the Holy Ghost and fire and the power of God. So in our lives, in our church, we want to be bridges to the access of God. We do not want to be barriers. We do not want to be stumbling blocks, but we want to be stepping stones so everyone can come into the house of God and have their needs met. Amen. And then Jesus said in verse 13 and 14, as he's chasing them out of the temple, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Lift up one hand toward the Lord and say, this house is a house of prayer. But then he looked at them and said, but what you've done is you've made it a den of thieves. Now we know the devil's a thief. So these folks were yielding to demonic spirits by bringing their things into the temple. But notice in verse 14, then the blind... And the lame came to him in the temple. And what happened? He healed them. He said, my house is a house of prayer. And when God's house becomes a house of prayer, it becomes a house of power. 
And when people's needs are met, it also becomes a house of praise. And so don't let that word lowly throw you. Let's go back to verse 6 now of our text. In verse 6 of our text, and that's back again now in the uh, Matthew chapter 21. Or actually, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 21. Let's go back to verse 6. Glory to God. Is God good to us? He absolutely is. Amen. And so he's cleansing the temple. And God is moving by his spirit. Verse 6 says, So the disciples went and did as he commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. And he sat on them. So here's a million dollar question. Why in the world... Did Jesus ride a donkey? You need to understand the symbolism of the donkey refers to the Eastern tradition that is an animal of peace, unlike the horse, which is an animal of war. You know, some of the people standing by and greeting him as he was coming in probably wished that he came on a horse. Well, I submit to you that he is going to come on a white horse one day. Let us call it Air Horse One. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. See a king would have ridden a horse. Because he was bent on war. And a king in the natural realm would have ridden a donkey, which symbolizes his arrival in peace. So the master's entrance to Jerusalem symbolized him coming as the prince of peace. Not as a war-raging king. Now notice with me in verse 8 through 11. Are you ready to read a little bit today? Ready, read. Verse 8. And a great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, Who is it? Let's try it one more time. Who is it? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now understand this. This is not just random praise. They're quoting from Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, in verse 25, it says, Save now. That's what the word Hosanna means. It means, save now, I pray. O Lord, I pray, send now, what? Did you know that prosperity is a part of your salvation? Another translation says, success. 
In other words, when the Savior comes into our life, He provides a road for prosperity and He provides a road for success. And then notice with me in verse 26, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you'll notice verse 24, right before this, notice this statement. And we, we have sung this song from the time we were Christians. How many of you ever have sung the song, This is the day, this is the day. Well, come on, raise your hand. You don't, I think we should bring back the oldies sometime. Or maybe not, but anyway. So right before they said, save now, send prosperity, Hosanna, they were cognizant and really believed that this is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. This is not just referring to any old day. The psalmist is referring to Palm Sunday which was literally prophesied years and years before. But did you know the same ones that were lined up in the streets crying out Hosanna in the highest on Sunday were the same ones who on Friday cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! I want you to picture in your mind today a city full of people who had for three years heard about this man that turned water into wine. This man that cured the deaf and healed the blind. This one that raised people from the dead and healed a crippled man from his birth. Many had heard about him, but also many had been there. And this only tells us half of the reason why they were excited. You see, they lived under Roman rule. And they lived in constant fear of a government and an army that literally despised the Jews. The Jews were oppressed under their rule. And a prophecy of a soon coming Messiah, it was their greatest hope. He's going to come on the scene and oh boy, the Romans have had it. What they were looking for was an earthly king. Little did they know that a heavenly king was about to come on the scene. Imagine if you had been told since you were a child your whole life that God was sending someone who would overthrow the government and restore your nation to its original and intended glory. Imagine if you believed that with all of your heart. And today was that day. Their emotions and their excitement was off the charts. It was at fever pitch. They lined the road where the Messiah would soon travel. What they failed to see is this. That he would suffer before he would reign. And before there would be a throne, there would be a cross. And so this grand entry is taking place. In those days, it was the common practice in that day to welcome home a king or a hero by laying out a path of branches for him to ride on. Very similar to rolling out the red carpet. 
You know, we have red carpets in America today, but it's not for Jesus. Oh yeah, there's carpets all right. There's carpets for the spirit of this world. There's carpets for Hollywood stars, but I'm telling you what, there's coming a day where the red carpet of glory is going to be laid out and the King of glory is going to come back. Amen. So the palm tree and the branches, it's a, it's a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of triumph and peace. It's an eternal symbol of life. And this originated in the Mediterranean in the Near East. Even the Romans, they honored champions of the games after they'd come back with branches. It was a symbol of the highest honor and reverence. It represented goodness and victory. Oftentimes, they would put on their coins a picture of a palm. Solomon had branches carved into the walls and the doors of the temple. At the end of the Word of God in the Bible, people from every nation are going to raise palm branches to honor Jesus the King. Now, there's something else that has just literally gotten a hold of me in the last 24 hours. I wasn't going to preach on this. I have another message completely outlined, completely ready. As a matter of fact, I put two sets of scriptures up there just in case I backed down and was going to preach something perhaps that was a little bit more familiar to me. But something got a hold of me in the last 24 hours. And it's so significant for us. Just before that he entered the city, Coming down from the Mount of Olives, Luke records literally one of the most powerful moments in the New Testament. Luke records this. Imagine Jesus looking down on the city of Jerusalem and his love for them just filled his heart. He loved them more than they could possibly know. Knowing all the while that the same crowd was going to reject him and crucify him a few days later. So as Jesus sat on that donkey, the scriptures tell us that there was a moment that he was literally overcome with emotion. How many of you know Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Literally wept over Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, I want you to look at it with me for a moment. Luke, the 19th chapter, the 41st verse and the 42nd verse. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he literally wept over it. Verse 42. Saying, if you had only known, even you, especially In this your day, the things that make for what? The things that make for your peace. In other words, the things that I've made available to you so that you might have peace. But now it says they are hidden from where? From your eyes. From your eyes. Now, Jesus literally knew what was going to happen to Jerusalem. 
And he wept over it. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knew what it was like not to be accepted. Notice with me in verse 43, right on through verse 44. He said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. He's talking about Titus, who in 70 AD would come in great wrath and in great Roman power and rulership. They would come and literally besiege the city of Jerusalem where 600,000 Jews were killed. He said, your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you on every side. Verse 44. And they're going to levy you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not know. Come on, somebody. You did not know the time or the day of your visitation. Does Jesus want to visit people today? Are people widely accepting accepting him today? Absolutely not. And so Jesus, he's weeping over Jerusalem. Because he knows that it's only hours away that he will be crucified. And he knew what was going to happen to Jerusalem. And it literally broke his heart. I believe today that Jesus weeps over cities. I believe he does. I believe that he weeps over the city of San Francisco. I believe that he weeps over the city of New York. I believe that he weeps over the Bay Area because he sees a people going their own way. And my brothers and sisters, we cannot go our own way too long before we run into the enemy on that path. He weeps over cities. And you know what? He weeps through us. The Bible says of Jesus in the book of of God, in the book of Hebrews, that it says, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. Come on. I was one of those people that he lifted out of the guttermost and went to the uttermost and lifted me out of hell and sent me on the way to heaven. And you were one of them as well. And there are literally people by the millions, yes, even billions, that are on their way to hell. But the good news is this. Jesus is alive. And he ever liveth to make intercession. He ever liveth to pray. Not only at the right hand of the Father, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And he prays his will and his plan for cities through you and through me. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. How many of you are familiar with the scripture from Psalms 126? It says, those who sow in tears. What are they going to do? They're going to reap in grief. No, thank God, those who sow in tears. 
they're going to reap in joy. So if you're moved by the Holy Spirit over your city, and you're moved to tears of intercession, just mark it down. Your tears are going to turn in to a harvest of joy. Because he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I also want to capture something else before that we close in a few moments. I want to capture verse 41 and verse 42 from the Amplified Version. There's something extremely significant here as well. The Bible says, As he approached, he saw the city, and he literally wept audibly over it. Notice verse 42. Would you read with me, please? It's a long verse, but it's a great verse. Ready, read. Exclaiming, Would that you had known personally, even at least this is your day, the things that make for peace, for freedom from all of the distresses that are experienced as the result of sin and upon which your peace, your security, your safety, your prosperity, and your happiness depends. Keep that up here just for a moment. Would that your eyes were open. Why do we constantly pray for one another and for our brothers and sisters, for ourselves, that the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened? Because if the eyes of our understanding are darkened, we're blinded to the truths of God's Word. But His heart's desire, Mm -hmm. and my heart's desire as a pastor, that in this day, there are things that make for your peace. And when we open our hearts to the Prince of Peace, here's what we'll experience. We'll experience security, safety, prosperity, and happiness, and protection from the head of the church. Oh, the peace of God is available to anyone and to everyone who would call on the name of the Lord. It's much the same today. People's eyes are blinded. They're missing their day of visitation. How many of you know that unbelief and rejection breaks God's heart? The world and people today need peace. And this peace only comes from the Prince of Peace. I just got to preach just a moment. He came to destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And to deliver them who through fear of death their whole lifetime, he came to deliver those their lives were subject to bondage. He broke the middle wall partition between us and he opened an avenue of grace and an avenue of peace and an avenue of joy. But this peace will never Ever, Even if you're a believer, this peace will never, ever be found in the world. There's people that win millions of dollars in the lottery and they're depressed. There's people that have buku bucks, can eat everything they want, can fly anywhere they want, and they're just filled with antidepressant medications. 
Peace is not found in a bottle. Peace is not found in a relationship other than a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I've written this in my notes. Those living under the tyranny of a demonic oppression of fear, Jesus brings freedom from oppression and peace from another world into your world. Glory to God. Here's what the master says to us today. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And he says, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Stop allowing yourself to be agitated and disturbed. Don't permit yourself to be fearful or intimidated and cowardly and unsettled. Your peace has been purchased. He was wounded for our transgressions. Raise up those palms right now. (laughs) Wave them around a little bit. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. You were wounded for our transgressions. You were bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon you. And with your stripes, we are healed. Hallelujah. He entered in Jerusalem. He enters into our lives. And he says, in the world, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have some trouble. But in me, you have perfect peace. So this is the beginning of Holy Week. We are entered in to Jerusalem. You study it out in the gospel. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing all the things that just tie together. It is awesome. You know, they went literally that same week to Bethany. You remember a guy by the name of Lazarus that was raised from the dead? And he was over at Mary or Martha's house. And one of them took a great big huge thing of holy ointment, of perfume. And she literally took her hair and washed the feet of the master. What were they doing? They were having a dinner celebration that Lazarus wasn't dead, that he was raised. And they were acknowledging the fact that this is the one that has resurrection power. And I think it's awesome because... This woman who literally wiped his feet with her hair, she was completely involved in it. She wasn't looking around to see who might might think something about it. You know, in church, oftentimes people look around to wait and see if someone else raises their hand. I think this story tells us that we can be worshipers. We can be uninhibited. We can get involved in the presence of God. He cleanses the temple. And then he gives the story of the fig tree. In the same chapter, he cursed the fig tree. And he said, no man eats fruit of thee hereafter forever. And in the morning as they walked by, his disciples looked at him and said, Master, the fig tree that you cursed is withered away. And all that week, he's taken time to teach them some important truths about worship, 
about faith and about prayer. And he turns to his disciples and he says, Guys, have faith in God. For truly I say unto you, that whoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. I just want you to know, before I give my life as a ransom for all, you've got a measure of mountain-moving faith. And you've seen me move mountains. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me heal the sick. But oh, I've given you a faith that overcomes the world. Now you go into all the world and preach this world overcoming faith wherever you go. And I'll be right there with you, confirming my word with signs following. Amen. Stand up, everybody. That's enough for today. Glory to God.